Hi, we're Katie, Jessica, and Shannon, and this is Boy Problems Podcast, a community focused on supporting families navigating substance use disorder. We hope sharing our stories, introducing you to experts, and answering all the questions you have no one else to ask will help you better navigate your story. Through our partners' recoveries, we found each other and formed our own squad, one we know is so valuable to how we manage this disease in our relationships. So we started bringing a microphone to our hangouts to extend our conversations to others just like us. When you're here, you're not alone. If you're listening, you probably know we met at a family support group and our bonds have grown stronger through sharing our stories and supporting each other. When we think about the thing that's helped us most, it's that. So we'd like to extend that community to you. If you're feeling like no one understands what you're dealing with, or you're looking for a community of like-minded individuals, consider joining our virtual support group. For details, visit us at recovering2.com. We know what you're going through, and we're here to help. We're Recovering Too. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Boy Problems Podcast. We are back again with uh, one of our favorites, Dr. Greer. Woo-woo! And, and we have someone else joining us from the bone recovery center, um, Angie, who is a nursing supervisor. So welcome, Angie. Hello. Hello. Thank you for for joining us. So, um, a few, maybe months ago, uh, Jessica had shared that her, her, um, stepmom, uh, had been decided to kind of go the recovery route, which is wonderful and had, um, started to do methadone and the three of us, none of that is in our story with our loved one. And so, um, Dr. Greer, you were so wonderful. And you said, Hey, you got questions about methadone. We're here, you know, we can answer anything. And so we thought it would be really valuable to, um, put it out to our listeners. Like what is methadone? Because, um, while we use Suboxone, Vivitrol, you know, we know about abuse. we don't know about methadone. So, um, we're excited for you guys to be here and hopefully share some of your knowledge. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is personal for me. So I, if you, um, aren't caught up to current day podcasts, um, my dad's, uh, fiance, um, I just call her my stepmom for simplicity, but, uh, she, um, hit a really rough road. She's, she was prescribed pain meds back, you know, years and years and years ago um, for chronic pain. And then with COVID kind of got, uh, kind of like didn't lost the resources she had and couldn't get to uh, the right doctors and things like that because her condition wasn't, you know, um, COVID related at the beginning. And so she just wasn't getting any uh, care. It kind of got out of hand and she started using heroin and sent her on a year and a half long using journey. And then finally, um, when she sought recovery, um, chose methadone. So I personally, my dad asked me questions all of the time and I have no idea like uh, what the program is like or how to, what to look out for, for misuse and things like that. So I'm just very grateful that you guys are here to kind of help people like me because I'm sure a lot of other people are in the same position. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So does one of you kind of want to jump in? Like what, what is it and how is it used and how does it work? (laughs) (laughs) 
So, you know, we use the acronym MAT a lot. And actually, ASAM and most of our governing bodies are trying to, you know, as in everything and with addiction recovery, it's an evolving field. And, and, and the further we get along in treatment and we see how it impacts um, others who are engaged in treatment, have loved ones who are engaged in treatment, or just merely, you know, members of the community, um, we find how sometimes the words we use maybe are misleading or that kind of thing. And so um, instead of saying MAT, like medicines for assist or medication assisted treatment, um, for the last couple of years, ASAM's really pushed and in our literature and in most, most uh, um, evidence-based literature to call it medicines for addiction treatment. So it's not just Suboxone, it's not just Vivitrol, it's not just opioids, but medicines that we use to treat people seeking addiction from a substance use disorder. So when we look at, you know, things, we the three things that we treat the most widely with medicines are nicotine um, or tobacco, alcohol, and opioids. Now we, we use medicines to treat other substance use disorders too, people who have, um, you know, have a, a sedative hypnotic use disorder like Xanax, Clonopin, that kind of stuff. We use medicines to treat that too. Um, we use some off-label medicines to treat stimulant use disorder like methamphetamine and cocaine and stuff. And we're trying so hard to find something that's like got good literature. So when we, but we look at the oldest medicine to treat a substance use disorder would be methadone. Like back in the thirties and forties, people who had, cause you know, heroin isn't new. It's not new with prescription drug misuse. <laughs> heroin, heroin's been around a little while and just affected more black and brown people than white people. But, but when we had problems with this in the thirties and the forties, they literally put people on what was called narcotic farms. And they would, that was a place where people got treatment, but they also were kind of studied. And so the people who came up with methadone to treat, you know, heroin use um, were actually two women and a man. Yay. <laughs> Doctors Dolgram and Van Creek and, and, um, uh, Plemmy, and they said that they felt that methadone reacted differently than your typical short-acting opioid, like at the time of heroin, but now that's evolved into, you know, fentanyl and all that kind of stuff, that they found it acted differently because it didn't produce the euphoria you get with a short-acting opioid, so the high, um, but it also was protective, meaning when you treat someone with methadone, if they were to use other opioids, it essentially blocked the effect much like Vivitrol does and much like buprenorphine does or Suboxone because the brain has those receptors and it will pick preferentially. So it will always pick methadone over Suboxone. It will pick methadone over Vivitrol and it will definitely pick methadone over substances that can be misused. And so way back in the forties, they realized this um, and began treating people. Now, I think methadone, Angie and I always say the most stigmatized medicine in all of the land is methadone. Yep, um, you know, Saturday Night Live makes skits about it. You know, people, you know, they're like, oh, you know, I partied too hard this week and I had to go to the methadone clinic on Monday, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of thing, or they just short it to the clinic and stuff. But really, it's a fascinating medication, which is so limited by archaic, um, you know, rules and regulations and stigma and myths, um, but it's been around the longest and it's the most studied um, for the treatment of opioid use disorder. You know, buprenorphine wasn't even legal to use until 2000 and not widely used until probably about 2010. And, you know, Vivitrol, naltrexone and stuff wasn't 
approved until 2012. So um, those medicines haven't been around as long as methadone has. Where do you think the, um, the stigma that you mentioned, like where does that come from? Well, I think that um, methadone was used to treat people and when substance use was a stigmatized condition, you know, people didn't have a substance use disorder, they were addicts and junkies. And so when you tie in a treatment with the population, um, that never went away. Okay, you know, buprenorphine, of course, or Suboxone is delivered in the suburbs. It's, you know, delivered to mm. people who have fair skin, that kind of thing. It's delivered to teenagers. And, um, and uh, we know that the, the black and brown and the poor and apart from and less than community um, is not associated with treatment, even though it's widely available to anybody. So um, same thing with methadone. And, and I think what parlayed into that is when that became, when methadone came to pass was when the treatment of substance use disorders was not evidence-based, it was um, highly regulated. And so those regulations around the treatment with people with methadone have somehow persist despite all the moves we've made in reducing the stigma and using evidence-based treatment in this field, methadone, the, the stigma and the handcuff, I mean, they call it liquid handcuffs. Mm -hmm. They just, the stigma is, um, is ridiculous. And I, Angie and I, to the best, I mean, we've been in this for a long time, her much longer than me. We have no idea uh, when we're going to be able to break this. It's, no. I mean, it's, it is unlike anything else in medicine. It, it's, and it's not for lack of trying, and especially Dr. Greer, who works tirelessly to change that. I think too, it had a lot to do with at the time, being methadone clinics for profit, that kind of did not help with the stigmatizing of it. It was, you know, hey, you got to come up with $15 cash every single day or you can't dose. When I started, that's how it was. And, you know, so people are going out doing things they wouldn't normally do to make the money to just get there every day. And it was, it was a hard time. It was kind of like the wild, wild west. And I started out as a dosing nurse, you know, and I felt like every single day I'm putting this bandaid on this gaping wound, sending these poor people back out into the world. Good luck. Hope I see you tomorrow. It, it was terrible. They couldn't get mental health services. They couldn't get medical services. They couldn't get anything. And I think that did not help give methadone a good reputation to start with. I have to admit that, you know, even as involved in the recovery community as I've been with my spouse for the last, uh, going on seven years, when I found out my stepmom was going on methadone, I was like, man, that's, I wish you would do, really do recovery. You know, like I just, I feel like I do it myself where it's like, you know, my husband uses Vivitrol, which is it's the same thing, you know, like the same type of tool, but I don't know why, like I felt that way too. So I'm so glad you guys are here to educate us because um, yeah, I mean, I felt it too. I have no idea where that came from. I, you know, yeah. I don't know. It's just something that I just felt like and intuitively. And it's like, that's, it's just been baked in for so long that, you know, that's a lesser than recovery route. Um, but I'm really glad to hear that yeah. you guys, um, you know, to share, to educate me, because like I said, I just, yeah. that was my instinct. Well, again, you were talking about, you know, the fact that it used to be cash-based and I thought, um, multiple doctors that Jay visited for like Suboxone, like only accepted cash as well. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. but somehow like, you don't hear about that. 
Right. Like I I always had a problem with that as well. Like that felt just Mm -hmm. doesn't feel like you're trying to help people like medically when you're making pay cash and you won't accept any insurance. But um, yeah, so interesting, like Jessica was saying, I also kind of have some of those views about methadone just from, you know, so many years of like hearing people like talk about it in a certain way. And, you know, it's, it's just another tool. So I guess I'd be curious, you mentioned that, um, you know, how things have changed and what, like, so what does it look like now? You said you felt like you were just putting a bandaid on a gaping wound and like, do you feel differently now? Oh, definitely. Now, um, the, the place that Dr. Greer and I had worked at previously was a for-profit and that was the model that it, it was set up as when Indiana lifted the moratorium and allowed more clinics to be built, they had to be, um, with hospitals, mental health facilities in conjunction with them. So when we got the chance to come to, you know, where we're at now, they basically said, hey, you guys know what works and what doesn't work. Let's change the perception of it. So we've been very blessed and fortunate to have the opportunity to change things from that. I mean, even just the building in and of itself, it looks like a doctor's office. It's fashioned like a doctor's office. If you didn't know that's what that was, you wouldn't think, oh, it's a methadone quote unquote clinic, you know, where you think like tumbleweeds, broken bottles, drug deals in the parking lot type place, you know, you, that's what people think of. But that's Angie, not do you remember, remember when we had our grand opening and a judge in Fort Wayne who's very stigmatized against everything, she came in and she was like, you know, having some refreshments, hobnobbing with the who's who, the governor was there, the mayor was there, like that. And then she turns to someone and goes, Hey, what is this place anyway? And someone goes, well, it's the new methadone clinic. She goes, oh my God. She goes, I wouldn't have came if I had known it was that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, that, that was... <laughs> oh my but, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, and when, when Governor Holcomb, Republican, Democrat, <laughs> but just he's a pretend Republican, when he came yeah. into the office, he said, you know, we have to use the IDIV and opiate treatment program. We have to use this um, as a tool. Okay. Cause like Shannon said, you know, now even that even like people who are prescribing Suboxone were charging cash for people. And it was, and it was get your medicine. If you don't have your medicine, get out, nothing else provided. Um, you know, they had radiologists and, you know, <laughs> the oh, stuff yeah. like prescribing Suboxone and, and, um, and no one really blinked an eye at that. But when Governor Holcomb came in, he said, you know, we need to, you know, his four pillars, one of them is addressing the substance use crisis in the Midwest. And he said, we're going to open up opiate treatment programs. However, they have to be attached to a community mental health center or hospital. So the for-profit model, the other thing was, is that he really pushed with Medicaid expansion that Medicaid would cover the treatment of an opiate use disorder. So, um, and, and we have an expanded Medicaid in the state of Indiana. So it went from people, like Angie said, you know, if you can't go steal a lawnmower to pay for treatment today, sorry about your luck, to we can get, you know, people come in, we can get them insurance that covers their treatment. Um, we can get it, their insurance sometimes helps with transportation, their, you know, that kind of thing. And then every OT, opiate treatment program now, the, at least one that's came up since 2015, is attached with psychiatric care, social work, recovery coaches, skills coaches, that kind of thing. So we have everything there. The model is wonderful. I mean, the model is a lot, 
is perfect for somebody who is newly entering recovery. That's amazing. Um, I appreciate the broad overview of kind of the history of methadone and kind of where we are today. We've, we've talked a lot about Suboxone and Vivitrol and Dr. Greer, you were on and exclusively discussed those things previously, but could you um, kind of compare like what are the differences between Suboxone, Vivitrol, and methadone, and why would one person get choose one over the other or be prescribed one over the other? Sure. So when, when patients come in to see us at the Bone Recovery Center, and we're a little bit different than like my outpatient office where we have appointments and stuff like that, uh, albeit today we did not, I don't know if Angie was on yet, or I was like, yeah, they access called and said, someone's coming in, but, oh. but like this morning, you know, at five o'clock in the morning, Angie and I were like, hey, we got two, two intakes. So it's two people who just walked in, no appointments. Um, and actually there was four people total. Um, two had already been in treatment with us. They'd left. They'd actually reduced their dose down to zero milligrams and were doing well. And then um, had a slip up and were coming back into treatment. One person brand new. And then one person came in. She was only 19. She'd only been using for about three months. And we were actually able to assess I don't know, one, she didn't meet the criteria for treatment in opiate treatment program. You have to, it's again, an archaic rule that you have to have an opiate use disorder for greater than a year. But um, she also was young. She hadn't really been using very long and we were able to arrange that she would get treatment to be assessed. We thought maybe buprenorphine or suboxone would be better for her. So she, we just started treatment there. And so we're kind of the one-stop shop, whatever you need, we're not gonna turn you away. We're gonna figure out what's best. Um, we have people come in all the time. They don't even use opiates because they can just walk in. And mm -hmm. so then we're like, hey, you know, I think alcohol is your problem. <laughs> let's get you, let's get you to our inpatient hospital to help with your withdrawal and stuff like that. So, um, but it's, I think the things that make it a little bit different, one is personal experience. Some people come into us and they, they said, I was doing great with being prescribed buprenorphine, but um, I was going to one of those places like Shannon talked where it's cash and I couldn't afford it anymore. I lost my insurance and couldn't afford it anymore. Or, you know, I got kicked out for smoking marijuana or something crazy like that. But um, for whatever reason, um, th but they said, but I have good experience with this. So or I went to jail and I did, and that kind of thing. So patients' personal experience is a big driver for us. Um, Another thing is, is, you know, with Vivitrol, I know you guys have had some good experience with that, but Vivitrol or naltrexone in general is really kind of reserved for the highly motivated person with lots of external supports um, and, and why it has a role. Definitely, it's a great medicine for alcohol use disorder. It has a role with opiate use disorder, but again, it's very challenging to start without um, some significant residential treatment, that kind of stuff. So, um, so sometimes methadone is if they have personal experience or um, if they just simply cannot um, manage administering their own medicine. So, you know, you treat someone with Suboxone, you send them home with, you know, a minimum a week, sometimes longer medicine. And some, some of our patients in early recovery can't administer that medicine on their own. They just, they can't do it yet. So mm -hmm. with the advent of fentanyl and all the analogs of fentanyl right now, fentanyl is very long acting it's what we call lipophilic. So, you know, people say, oh, if you smoke a joint, it's going to hang on for a long time because it's lipophilic. It gets a little fentanyl does that too. So if you guys remember from your past experiences, knowing about starting Suboxone, that you have to be into a certain amount of withdrawal 
with fentanyl, even if you get to where you're feeling awful, just awful, 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 our patients still can't start Suboxone because again, it's so lipophilic. And so we're finding that there's some patients who they would love to be treated as an outpatient with Suboxone and they just can't. They can't start the medicine or if they have a return to use with fentanyl, they can't restart the medicine. So, you know, I'll see someone in my office and they're like, I haven't been able to take my Suboxone for two weeks because I used fentanyl on one weekend and now I can't start it up again. I can't you know, be in withdrawal long enough and still function. So, um, wow. so methadone is becoming more and more of the only tool we can use. Um, so it's, so that's, those are some of the things we put into decision-making with people. So there's no like waiting period for the methadone then? No, because, you know, because methadone's a pure agonist. So it's, if it, remember we said it kicks things off the receptors, you know, if it's fentanyl okay. or heroin or even suboxone, it's going to hundred percent activate those receptors, whereas Suboxone will only partially activate them. And so the opioid tenor or tone will drop, it will drop very, very, very fast with buprenorphine and to zero with Vivitrol. So, so those are the reasons you can't use those medicines until there's a significant amount of receptors that are completely unoccupied. So would somebody it's tricky. Would somebody be able to transition from methadone to like Vivitrol or Suboxone or would, would you have to like- Yeah, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky. And usually what we do is we wean their doses down. And this is, this is like a huge highlight of studying for us because sometimes we have to, you know, and we, we just have to. Um, And so we have done things, what we call like micro dosing, where we'll give and this is hard to do because what we're trying to give to people, the microdose is giving people fentanyl, Dilaudid, that kind of stuff. And that's a tricky one for me to get past my psychiatry copadres at our in-house. I'm like, I just want you to give them a little bit of Dilaudid and a little bit of Suboxone. And they're like, whoa, 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 we don't need that here. And I'm like, trust me. <laughs> this is what we need to do. Um, and, and sometimes, honestly, our patients do it. They will take they will get their methadone down to like 30 milligrams, which is a pretty low dose. They will um, go home. They'll gut it out as long as they can. They'll take a little Suboxone and they'll, they'll chase it with a little fentanyl. And they'll take a little bit more Suboxone, a little bit less fentanyl. And it's, I mean, my patients know how to do this probably better than half my colleagues do because they've done it before. Um, so it's something we study all, I mean, Angie knows, I talk about it all the time. I'm like, if we could get these micro doses and stuff, the pharmacists look at me like, you want to do what? what? But, <laughs> but you can go to method, you can start methadone at any time. So Vivitrol um, is tricky. You you really have to have a prolonged period of abstinence from all opioids. Like with methadone, it's over four weeks, four to five weeks. So that's tricky to do outside of someone who's in a very controlled environment, like not even jail, people use in jail all the time. So it's mm-hmm. like- a residential wow. treatment program usually. So, so is it a drink? Is you drink? Re- it? Yeah, Angie can tell you why we use a drink. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, well, it, we use we use the liquid methadone because when they come in, they come into the nurses, and the nurses, you know, make sure that it's the right person. You know, everything, the dose, and the nurses pump it out. They hand it to the patient. The patient mixes it with some water because if it tastes really bad from what I hear and understand. It might smell like cherries. It does not taste like that. And they drink it down. Well, here's the thing. We have to make sure that they swallow it as wacky as it mm-hmm. sounds. Sometimes people try to circumvent the, uh, 
process. So they swallow it down, they talk to the nurses and then they go about their way. So with that, it's, it's easy to control that and prevent diversion of the methadone. Yeah. The other thing is, is the tablets of methadone come in like what, Angie, like five and 10 milligrams. Yep. Yep. We, we titrate and, and um, customize our dose for our patients to the closest one milligram. Mm -hmm. So um, with a liquid, it's a lot easier to do that and to say, you know, um, you know, we're going to, especially when people are titrating down and titrating up, we can fine tune it. So it's, mm -hmm. you know, not too much, not too little. So okay. for those two reasons, we um, use a liquid. It's also a lot easier to inventory. Um, the DEA is like white on rice where all this methadone is because it is a lot of methadone in there. It's so um, yeah. it's a lot easier to inventory liquid yep. than it is tablets. It is. Oh. And so, oh, sorry. is it easier? So like Suboxone, like my husband, well, I've heard, you know, you can save your packets and you can get a high and XYZ and Vivitrol, like I think Casey said he went to the appointment, but he never went. And so is this like more of a, almost like a guaranteed thing? I, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's um for family like from a family member's perspective yeah. so it's like hey they go to the clinic they yes. know like you know that they're going to yeah. get it type of thing yeah yeah i, I guess they could lie about going to the clinic like you know they'd have a lot of they'd have a lot of withdrawal though if they, they would, yeah. not not initially mm -hmm. but after a couple of days you'd start to feel pretty crummy and that's mm -hmm. the point in 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 my you know utopia land, which I will get before I retire. Yes, you will. <laughs> I might be working for a long time, but I'll get it. Yes. That an opiate treatment program will not only use methadone, that will use all medicines to treat opioids. Mm -hmm. And the only difference that an opiate treatment program like the Bone Recovery Center would be from my office in Wabash, Huntington, Fort Wayne, that kind of thing, is that we have a high level of care where we see people all the time, where we have everything right there. And then when people start to get better, in my utopia, then they can go out to the lesser intense service. And it's not decided on what medicine you take, but rather the intensity of care. So anyone could get Vivitrol, Suboxone, injectable Suboxone like Supplicade, Methadone, whatever medicine they need and get the high intensity services. And then when they're, I mean, we have patients who've been in treatment for 20 years, you know, why did they they need to come even once a week. That's ridiculous. We aren't doing anything for them anymore. But then they could go to an office and do like what other every other patient does with a chronic illness that's in remission. Get their medicine once a month. Get their medicine, you know, once every three months. I don't know if I'll live that long, but once a month I'll go for. So they did in that's New York actually. There was an addiction psychiatrist who's like the you know the mecca of all things. He actually got an NIH grant to study giving patients methadone in the office and just treating them like regular office patients. And he was able to show, um, albeit a very small number, that people did well, they stayed in treatment, there wasn't concern about diversion or you know, misuse or wasn't like the wild, wild west or anything. And then those patients were allowed to stay receiving mess in that way. So that his study was almost 25 years ago and he still has patients who are still in treatment with them. And they're like, we'll never leave because we can just go to the office once a month, so. Is there, is there any risk with, of people like taking methadone for like 25 years or being on any sort of treatment for that long? 
there's there's some risk with long-term opioid use, but you know, heroin and fentanyl are opiates too. So yeah. the biggest things we see, there's a lot of myths. So what's the old, what's the biggest one, Angie? People say teeth. It, it, it yeah, takes rot, yeah. rots your teeth and rots, rots your, your bones. And that's rots your bones. Yeah. yeah. If you drink a, a liquid cherry flavored medicine every day and you don't brush your teeth, you're gonna have some problems with your teeth. But if you brush your teeth, you're good. Um, the biggest thing is, is that it reduces the production of steroid hormones. So men, a lot of times will, and this is with any chronic opiate therapy that they'll experience low testosterone. Mm -hmm. um, that's, about the, that's about the only thing. There's no evidence that it shows any problems with like, you know, liver or kidneys or anything like that. It's it's a medicine, just like lots of medicines people take long-term. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned that people can be on methadone for a very long time. What, I guess I always viewed these, um, you know, medications for addiction treatment to be kind of temporary, you know, like a stopgap, <laughs> like I'm gonna be on this. So that's been my experience with my husband who's on Suboxone, you know, tapered off and, didn't, that didn't work out very well. And then we ended up at Fairbanks and this whole thing and then Vivitrol. But I guess we've always viewed it as like, well, eventually we won't, he won't need these things. Is that mm -hmm. realistic or are these things that can be used for your entire life? I think we know two things about medicines to treat any substance use disorder. And honestly, medicines to treat mental illness too, or any chronic disease is that when we use arbitrary times like it's been a year it's been two years it's been three years it's been five years it's time to start thinking about tapering off and that is our only indication it's associated with not good outcomes the other thing is is that the longer people stay in treatment the longer they stay in recovery um and so there are some people who i mean we have patients who come in and they're only in treatment for a year and and they taper down and never see them again even though we emphasize if you start to struggle please come back um, so I, I guess it's just everybody, just like if I, you know, when I start an antidepressant on somebody, I usually encourage them to at least stay with it for six months because the risk of recurrence of their depressive episode is through the roof for those first six months. Some patients can taper it off. Other people can't. Um, but I don't, I think the goal is always to keep people in recovery, not to get medicine stopped. Um, mm -hmm. and we have now, because we use medicine so widely for opiate use, we all have our horror stories of my goal was to get off of medicine. And, you know, unfortunately I could see why people would want to stop taking methadone because we make it so dang hard for them to take it. You know, it's almost like a reward to, you know, not have to come and see us, but um, that's also associated with, you know, if someone returns to use, especially in this day and age, they're not playing out there. There's no heroin anymore. There's no pain pills. It's all fentanyl. And if you are not tolerant to that stuff, it will kill you the first time you use it. And so we, we don't push people one way or another really, but we try to let them know that the risks of return to use are so great um, that we, we just have to stick with you through the whole way. Yeah, it's interesting that we think, cause similar to Jessica, you know, I had the same mindset of like, oh, at some arbitrary time, you should be off of this. Like that will be a sign that you're really doing well in recovery. Mm -hmm. um, but I was thinking like, I guess we don't really do that with other chronic diseases like, mm -hmm. or other health issues. I mean, my dad's been on like blood pressure medicine and things for ever, it seems like. And 
you know, or people like diabetes and insulin, like we're not rushing to get people off of those medicines. And and so I don't know, that was interesting when you brought that up. Yeah. I know, I know something that people always ask us, like people come in and they, they do tours and stuff like that. And they, they invariably want to know what is your rate of success in, you know, in, in a perfect Mm -hmm. world, like, well, we've had 700 people detox our program, but in reality, you know what, we have 550 people that aren't dead. We had 550 families that didn't have to Mm -hmm. bury somebody they loved. That is success. And that's how we view it. That gave me chills, Angie. Oh, me too. I was just going to say that. Like, yeah. oh, man. I felt like myself. Because that's so, I just so think real. That's, it's so important it to understand that, though. You know, I it, think it, it is even the three, the three of us, we talk about this all of the time. And, we, mm-hmm. you know, I've said, I think about my husband's addiction as a disease. And sure. I truly believe that. And, you know, that's been the mm-hmm. way. But there are still components of um, his disease that I still like judge and don't fully understand. And I think that's just so the average person that's not living this, you know, that would be such a hard thing to know or to understand. Yeah. yeah. So. But if you, if you think about it in terms of that, you, it, it is kind of like you said, you know, it's like, that's kind of like the aha moment where you go, wow, you know what, that, that is right. You know? And I think mm-hmm. people too, you know, I think with us, like me particularly, when I hire nurses, I'm very picky about who I hire because I'm like, I can't just put anybody in there because, you know, our our people, they tend to kind of get dependent on seeing the nurses' faces every day, you know, and we've, I've done this long enough. I've seen babies, grandbabies, marriages, divorces, you name it, we've taken this. And I always say, you know, the best part of my job is it's a privilege to take this journey with our patients because, you know, they're the bravest people I know. They have to change their whole life. And I mean, that's a daunting prospect, you know? And I tell them, don't get overwhelmed. You can't eat the elephant all at once. You got to do it one bite at a time. Hang in there. You know what? We'll get you there. You know, we're your cheerleaders. We're here to help you out. So there's just, I mean, so many layers to it, you know? Yeah. So then, okay. So they have to come every day. Then what's the day-to-day of this? If I think about this from a family member perspective, Mm -hmm. like my loved one is going to get on methadone. What does that mean for our day-to-day life? Trips to the clinic? Mm -hmm. Um, Does it, do we ever get to go on vacation? Do we ever like, what does that look like? Sure. So when people come in, we, we follow these archaic guidelines from SAMHSA and the Department of Mental Health Addictions. They haven't been looked at in like, what, 20 years, Andy? It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they've been saying, and honestly, this is one thing where COVID just threw a monkey wrench into it because we were so close. <laughs> and then, <laughs> so, but, so the, 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 overall pre, the overall premise is that methadone, if, if it gets, if someone is taking methadone, they are just irresponsible and they will, they'll die if they don't have someone watching them every minute. And that's obviously ridiculous. We prescribe a lot of very dangerous medications on the regular that in the hands of the wrong person or taken the wrong way can kill somebody. And you know, you can give Xanax to someone for three months at a time and no one bats an eye. So, um, so when someone comes in, the, what the Department of Mental Health and Addictions, which is kind of, so it's a, it's a state and a, and a federal guideline is that 
for the first five days, we have to see somebody. And then technically after that, we can send them home with one dose of methadone a week. We don't typically do that because in five days, they're not really even at a stable dose yet. So, but in order to ever take methadone home, you have to have a drug test that has nothing in it but methadone, which means no weed, which where does marijuana have anything to do with the, your ability to self-administer a life-saving medicine? But I digress. So, but let's say you don't live 20 minutes away from the Michigan border and your patients don't smoke pot. Um, after 30 days, you could take your medicine home one day a week. Okay. And then assuming you're still doing okay, after a total of 90 days, you can take two days. And then it's basically every three months you can add. So it goes from one to two to three to six. And then we had a great thing up until COVID, that was the most you could ever take home. Yep. Now there was a long time ago, right, Ange? Wasn't it like maybe long like five, ago. 10 years ago, you yep. could take two weeks home. Two weeks. And then they pumped the brakes on that yep. in like what, 2012 or something? Yeah, too much, too much methadone yep. on the street. Yeah, so they pumped the brakes on that. So if you already had those two weeks, you could keep them. But if you lost them, you can never get them back. So believe me, how fun was it to tell people who lost their two weeks of take-homes? Yeah, no. I mean, they'd go to the mat. You could catch them with, you know, cocaine in their hand. They'd be like, ain't mine. Nope. <laughs> it wasn't me. <laughs> but, then, but then COVID happened. And all of a sudden, on a dime, everybody had to take medicine home. Because we yep. couldn't, I mean, again, at the time when COVID started, we only had like 320 patients. But we couldn't have them all there at the same time. And we would all be dead. So we started sending people home with medicine. And, you know, shockingly, what happened was, people did really well. And people who had a hard time driving an hour to our treatment program every day, all of a sudden they didn't have that anymore. So they were able to get their medicine every day and then they did really well. And no one was out there. It wasn't the wild, wild west of people starting a methadone ring or anything like that. So um, we did have some patients, they took their medicine home. It was too much. They came back and said, I'm not ready for this. And that's fine. But to the best of our knowledge, we had no methadone get into the wrong hands of somebody. The police in our Allen County and surrounding counties did not confiscate any methadone with our patients' names on it that wasn't with our patient wow. in what, 16 months that we had that. So, but then as soon as it was there and we thought maybe there's an end in sight, then they just went like 180 on us and said, nope, no take homes for anybody. Yep. <laughs> and so um, now we're back to the archaic ways of 70 year olds who smoke marijuana for their chronic pain have to come to the Bowen Recovery Center every single day with their wheelchairs and their walkers and their oxygen. So it makes a lot of sense. I hope Tony Tuber listens to this. That would be <laughs> you can send a link. I'll just drop a link wherever you want to. <laughs> Well, the, the good thing is, is I'm on a committee with the American Society of Addiction Medicine where we are looking, we do policy and advocacy statements. And one of them was opiate treatment programs. And it was published finally, it got approved by everybody, it was published at the end of October. And it addresses these things that people who've been in duration of treatment, not what your drug test shows should dictate how much medicine you can take home. And because when you make someone come every day, you put them at risk of having their treatment. You put a barrier to their treatment. I can't get a ride. I don't have gas money. My job doesn't let me come every day. Um, the weather is bad, um, those, all those things. And what I've done is I've said, because, because someone arbitrarily decided that you couldn't self-administer this medicine, I'm okay with you not getting that medicine. 
And so if you use, as someone would do, if they haven't been to treatment in two days and you have an overdose or you bring that stuff into your house and something happens to your kids or you drive a car and you haven't used heroin or fentanyl a long time and you get in an accident and you know kill someone's grandma, we made that happen. We are very closely linked to that. We created a barrier for treatment that was not helping anybody. Um, so it's not, it's, it's, we've taken it from, you get rewarded with taking your medicines home to instead of, we are trying to put the least barriers there to make sure that you stay in treatment. Um, and I don't know, again, I'm not planning on working until I'm 70, but I will if it's necessary <laughs> to get this. Well, fixed. I'm grateful for you because I feel like, <laughs> the, like you're doing like amazing stuff. I just like, I don't, I'm just so grateful for you and people like you who care and devote their time and energy to solving these problems for families like mine. And hopefully my kid, if he grows up and has this disease, has a way easier time getting treatment, you know, or, you know, it's just, I don't know. I'm very, very grateful for you and what you guys do. It's just amazing. Angie and I weren't always like this. I, I know Angie, she thought you were applying to a home healthcare place, not premier methadone, right? <laughs> I, I didn't know. I worked for an oral surgeon in like when the economy tanked here in like 09, my hours got cut. So I answered this blind ad in the newspaper. I've lived in this town my whole life. I didn't even know this place existed, but it was like going to pay me the same amount. Give me 40 hours. I'm like, what do I got to do? I don't care. I, I just, I need a job. So I go there, you know, and I mean, it's like super stigmatized, shrouded in secrecy, you know, turn left at the big rock, you know, signal twice, knock on the door, you know, and I, you know, they come out like the security guards, like bam, 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 cop knock on my window. I'm like, well, you know, I'm just here for an interview. You know, they escort you in and stuff like that. And, you know, but then when I got there and I got into it, you know, to go from being for oral surgeon to doing this. But I got there and I was like, these are my people. This is where I should Aww. be, you know? And then, you know, Dr. Greer came on board, which is really funny because there was just a very brief period of time where I taught her everything she knew at that little brief period of time. <laughs> small period of time so. Yeah, I did. I, when they, some people approached me and I said, I am a fellowship trained addiction medicine physician. I don't work in methadone clinics. <laughs> so I was like, this isn't what I do. Um, but they, they were ruthless. They came to my office in Kokomo and like waited in my waiting room. <laughs> I was like, okay. And I was like, I'll be in Marion. I go to Marion once a week to work at the hospital. I'll stop by. Well, then I met Angie and I met another one of our compadres, Debbie. And I was like, I said the same thing. I said, these are my people. This is, we can do good stuff here. Yep, and then yep. I, of course, I didn't know anything about methadone. Then I knew about other medicines and stuff like that. But um, uh, so I was an idiot. And luckily I didn't kill anybody because Angie <laughs> showed, Angie goes, I'm medical. Just follow me. You'll be okay. <laughs> do what I say. You'll be okay. <laughs> well, I'm glad you guys both ended up there. And Angie, when you were talking earlier about um, your relationship with some of the patients. I was just thinking like how cool that is, especially like, you know, I'm imagining someone when they're first coming in and um, they're so often, you know, been made to feel like worthless and nobody cares about them. And mm -hmm. so to have somebody like you there encouraging them mm -hmm. and making them feel valued, like that is such an important part of the recovery process 
as well. So that's it, it, it is really respect, important. kindness, you know, it, it mm -hmm. just translates. Yeah. And that's why I tell the nurses, I'm like, you know, you might be only friendly face. These people see every single day. So make your interactions count, you know, and they do appreciate that. Oh man, you know, Hey, I like your hair. Oh, you got your nails done. Those are so cute. What? Oh, you, you know, just simple things like that. Give them that little bit of encouragement and you can just see them like walk away with a smile going, all right, you know, this is going to be a good day. You know, when they come in and they're like, man, I went to the hospital. They called me a junkie. They didn't give me anything. You know, I'm really sorry you had that experience. That That's awful. Sorry. I apologize on behalf of the profession, you know, but we just try to encourage them just as much as we can, you know. Yeah. It's awesome. Is there anything that like any common either misconceptions or just any common knowledge about methadone or any other treatments that that we haven't covered that maybe you think are really important for people to know both those seeking recovery but also people supporting them mm -hmm. I, I think that if someone is not doing well with the treatment that they're using right now specifically buprenorphine because I or suboxone because I feel like we've really pushed we did this with Vivitrol too, that it's the wonder drug. And if you really want it, it will work well. Um, that if someone's not doing okay, that um, it doesn't mean that you can accept a half response to recovery, that, that there might, that there's other medicines that might be helpful for them too. Um, and, and we really encourage that, you know, like if you, all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail and um, you know, the, some of these places like Shannon talked about these cash places, they would never suggest maybe, maybe this medicine is the right one for you. Maybe we need to do something else. Now we've, we've been lucky that over in some of our areas that we've developed relationships with some of the for-profit, for lack of a better word, Suboxone clinics, that they don't want to see their patients struggle. And so we're the referral source for, you know, probably 10 or 15 outpatient offices that use buprenorphine systems. Um, that they they all send them to us, and that never happened a few years ago. So I think if someone is not doing well with that medication agent, especially knowing what we know about fentanyl and analogs and stuff like that, um, that the game has changed, and um, methadone is not like oh well you're worse or you're not as committed or not trying as hard. Um, I think the other thing is too is the the myth that. Um, people who get methadone just want to be high all day. Um, it, even though it's a pure agonist, it doesn't work that way. It's got a very slow onset and it just lasts for a long time. So um, if people are sleepy with methadone, there's two things I would say. One is, are they taking anything else? <laughs> Which happens all the time. Everyone wants to blame the methadone. I'm like, eh, it could be the cerebral they're chewing up. But um, the other thing is, is their dose might be too high. But um, there's, if you want to take more methadone than you need, you're just going to be tired and constipated. And I don't think that's what anyone's going for. <laughs> so, um, especially someone who's opioid dependent, it is not going to generate, you know, pleasure and stuff like that. Now there's some people who get kind of anxious about not getting their dose of methadone. And that's because they don't want to have withdrawal symptoms, which are very uncomfortable, but it's not like they're seeking a high or anything like that. And it's, you know, we know this because we talk to our patients. So, and but you know, it's they'll go to the emergency room and let's say it's like, you know, they wake up and they have chest pain and they go to the emergency room at eight o'clock and they find out it's not a heart attack, but they have to do some more stuff and it's getting close to that one o'clock time period because 
opiate treatment programs generally are open from very early in the morning to about just after lunch. That way you can get everybody, no matter what shift they work, you can get them. But they're not open till five o'clock at night usually. And so patients start to get anxious. Can you please call the clinic before they close so I can make sure I get my methadone? And I think some of our emergency care providers are like, oh, he just wants his, wants his meds and stuff. And I'm like, well, no, because he doesn't want to have on top of chest pain, he doesn't want to have opiate withdrawal for the next 24 hours either. Yeah. So um, let's, let's make sure that we continue their home medications while they're here. Yeah, this has been extremely eye-opening for me and, and hopefully some wonderful information for everyone else listening. Uh, as we kind of close up, I know Angie, Dr. Greer said that you've been on the front lines, you've been doing this. Is there anything that you would share either for family members or even those who are struggling with this disease just kind of to close us out? Absolutely. Just please come, come in, come, come and get some help. You know, we're here to help you. We're not going to make you feel bad. The world's a bad enough place. Come on in, you know, let's, let's make it a better place for you. You know, there's so much ugly in the world. You know, we want to be a kind and helpful place. So just be kind, be encouraging. You know, it, it's hard. Nobody wakes up and decides that's the life they want to lead. So just be kind and be encouraging. That would be my takeaway. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, the two of you, Dr. Greer, Angie, thank you so much again for joining us on this podcast. I am so excited to release it and to have everyone listen in and uh, everyone who's listening. Uh, thank you and uh, keep coming back. Thanks for spending time with us. We hope this story has helped you better navigate yours. Don't forget to subscribe so we can meet you here next time. If you enjoyed this episode, spread the love by rating or reviewing. Need more support? Join our online community by visiting us at boyproblemspod.com. Whatever you do, keep coming back. We're not licensed professionals. We're here to share our lived experience. So take what resonates and leave what doesn't.